0: Everybody is talking about the bioeconomy, the bioeconomy, right? It's like a big word kind of that is becoming used and abused again. But what does it mean? It's using biology the same way in the past we used petrochemistry. Last century, we used petrol as the source of certain unlock, both in terms of performance and operational efficiency. Well, now we're gonna use biology, not only for performance, but to try to mitigate the impact we have on our planet. If we cannot reduce our consumption, we have to consume differently. Using different input. And this is what we're trying to do with biology. We use biology as a technology.
1: Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that explores how sustainable business leaders are aligning purpose, profit, and innovation to drive positive change in their various industries. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Ruggiero-Lovici, the CEO of Modern Meadow, a biotechnology research and development company that's disrupting material science by designing protein alternatives to petrochemicals. In the textile and beauty sectors, manufacturers have historically relied on oil-based compounds to create the ingredients that make the products that we use every day, from shampoos to purses to wallets. This reliance on petrochemistry has adversely contributed to the changing climate, but until the last few years, companies didn't really have many viable alternatives. However, after more than a decade of research, Modern Meadow has created a few inventive solutions as their scientists and researchers design protein substitutes in the lab. Through meticulous work, they've been able to create better performing materials with benefits in areas as diverse as color fastness in fabric, breathability in fashion, and anti-aging properties in cosmetics. While Modern Meadow had the technical expertise to redefine the customer economy, Catherine's brilliant business acumen has been key to successfully bringing their materials to market. Her deep understanding of the problems facing fashion, beauty, and cosmetics, strengthened through her work at L'Oreal and Louboutin, has allowed Modern Meadow to establish effective partnerships with legendary brands such as Tory Burch. We're starting to see these major brands leave the petrochemical past behind in favor of a better, more sustainable future. I'm excited for our discussion, as like me, Catherine is a lifelong learner and a champion of the general's career path. So let's get started. So, I want to start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from.
0: Well, initially, I was, <laughs> I was born in France. I'm a little French, <laughs> French Italian to be specific. And uh, But I've been in the US for many, many years. Actually, uh, three days ago was 31 years ago that I moved here. So, wow. yeah, it's been a little while.
1: When you were growing up, was that something that was in the cards? Like you wanted to come to the States for? Build a career.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes and no, right? The, when you are, i French, and again, um, in Europe, uh, in the in the 80s, <laughs> the last century. America has such a, had such an image, you know, everything we were consuming had, the moment that it was America, America stamped was, was superior, even bubblegum was sold, you know, as the best was American. So, of course, America was always something, uh, a country that was really uh, interesting, and I was very curious about, but I have to say, I was supposed to come here for the summer for my first year of, of university, just for the summer as an exchange, and I, in fact, I'd never left. So that was a bit of a serendipity moment kind of thing.
1: That's amazing. Now, going back to that, the undergrad you did in Florida. In Florida,
0: so I went to Florida initially. I was I was studying um, business and biology, and I very quickly realized that uh, business was something that was much more interesting to me. Uh, the connectivity, the impact, and what I could bring to the table was definitely clearer. And I started in that in that direction and did my schooling both in undergrad and grad in, in that in international business. So.
1: Did you always have in the back of your mind that like fashion, beauty, CPG was going to be the not sector? Not at all. Was that You're giving a, me okay. way
0: more intent than I had. <laughs> I don't know, to be honest, any, you know, at the time, 18 year old person that actually knew what they wanted to do. You just wanted to explore. And I was always very curious and trying. And I mean, any, and I look at now, you know, people tell me, you know, I'm very confused. And I'm like, who told you, you should not be confused. <laughs> I think all of us went through, a f- and that's the good yeah. part, right? And I see the difference between my husband and I, my husband has a vocation, he's a doctor and he's been, now he's a doctor both in France and in the U.S. And it's a different attitude, it's a different way. When you know what you want to do and how you want to do it, it's, it's about doing it. When you're like me, which is a little bit more opportunistic, and the objective is to create connectivity and value and therefore curiosity in what drives you. And that's what I would say to anybody in, early in their journey, or even late for that matter, continue to explore. Life is about that. There is no end game. It's about learning and and hopefully leaving something positive behind.
1: We really have built this entirely artificial construct of what a career ought to be and how you ought to know at age 18 what that looks like. I mean, we have so much pressure on ourselves and Mm -hmm. next generation to do that. And I, yeah, like you, I had no idea at 18 what what was going on in the world, what I wanted to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and also the, the difference between what you think a job is and what it is really. Right. <laughs> of what, uh, and also you're going to be doing that for the next 45 to 47 years of your life. And when you reach a certain level, I think that the more experience you have in more diverse um, uh, field, not only will give you the ability to connect pieces together better, but also it, it really in the first sense of the term, it gives you creativity on how to solve problem. If you're monothematic and you have been in one company or one path, you will be excellent at it. But if life throws you a curveball, first of all, you will have challenge facing that emotionally and intellectually as well, because you've seen only one version of life.
1: Yeah. I talk to my team and and mentees all the time about the idea that there's nothing wrong, nothing dirty about being a generalist. Being a generalist actually To the extent you can build a career around adding new skills to your portfolio, adding new tools to your tool belt that only in the long run makes you more interesting, more marketable, more valuable.
0: As long as we don't think that generalist is an expertise, there I'm very in agreement with you. Yeah. If you are a generalist, you have to realize the positive but also the limits of it. You have to constantly learn and you have to constantly ask and you have to constantly acknowledge what you don't know, don't understand and seek knowledge. Because your role as a generalist is to have the mental flexibility to identify problem and put the necessary resources together. The only resource that you are is to put the others together. And I think that as long as you understand that and you don't become the expert in nothing, you're good to
1: go. What do you think the 18-year-old, first day in Florida, if, if she saw what you're doing right now, what do you think she would think or, or say about the incredible career you've built and what you're doing right now?
0: I think I would be more interested in the journey than the end result. And this is, again, my take in life, right? So the only thing that i would say is is the journey was fun was very diverse went in very different locations both pr- um, in terms of location and activities if i may say
1: let's talk about the journey cuz you said it yourself I, but you look at your cv and it's like a list of some of the coolest companies and brands and products and i think many people would be envious of of all that cool stuff i mean it, it looks super fun so I'll ask the first question, which was your favorite job on that CV?
0: It's the one I'm in today. Otherwise, I wouldn't be every role or every activity you do leads you somewhere. And if you stay there, it means that you're satisfied. If you're not, I would recommend anybody to to go somewhere else and to contribute. My, the most important for me has always been two things. One, learn and two, contribute. The moment I didn't see that I was learning and I was not contributing, that's where I, I used to move. And I was, to be honest, I was very lucky I had people around me because, being, again, being your, during your career, there is a lot of opportunity that comes your way. Actually, most of them came my way, if not all of them. And it's about being ready at that point and understand what you, what you are missing and, and having the necessary um, judgment to understand if it's the right fit at that moment.
1: Right. I mean, the longest was your time at L'Oreal. Mm-hmm. How did you get recruited to L'Oreal? What, what was that path like?
0: Actually, I was coming out of school at the time. I was on my student visa, and at the time, you were the U.S. government provided you with what they used to call practical training—the ability to exercise for one year what you studied in the U.S. Basically, for me, it was international business with a focus to in Latin America. I went down to every newspaper ads, and I went for every single job I I could see that needed somebody, which was who was multicultural, spoke multiple languages, had the ability to do business in multiple countries, willing to travel. When I interview, I interviewed for multiple companies, from credit card to export company, and to a company who I realized when I was on site was L'Oreal, because at the time it was not called L'Oreal. And it's still not. It's a subsidiary called Parbel, which means in Spanish, para belleza, which means for beauty. And therefore, I didn't know I was interviewing for L'Oreal at the time. and uh, And there it is.
1: As you think back to that first the entry point into your career. Anything that sticks out now that you think uh, that lesson really, like that's been the one, one of the lessons that I've carried with me forever.
0: Yes, I was lucky to be surrounded by people who not only were extremely experienced, but had also had many different roles and and expertise. And I think that one of the things that they said is, you need to know your partner or client or customer better than they know themselves. That's the only way you will engage in, in the proper negotiation. The same way uh, they told me, you need to know your limits because there is a moment where a deal is a bad deal. When you know those two things, then you enter the room. Before that, you don't. And that's a lesson that I've tried to apply and continue to apply is to understand the limits and why they are limits and how you can provide and give the party whatever they need if it doesn't basically touch your limits, matter of speaking, and know their business as well as I knew mine. To be more creative in the problem solving, to be more creative in the negotiation of terms, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. You also have done some firsts. And and so the next chapter, I think you were the first GM of beauty at a brand that's famous not for beauty, but for shoes originally. So how was it to be the first GM and, and launch kind of the beauty business at an iconic brand in a different space?
0: Yeah, I think it was, it was interesting. Actually, When I, after 18 years at L'Oreal and nine roles around the world, it's not like I left L'Oreal. I went to Louboutin, right? And because Louboutin offered the opportunity to build a business from zero on the beauty space with having a brand that is both beautiful and recognized in a specific space. And that's another advice that we say to people, don't leave job, go to another job. It's a different mentality, right? And this, this was, first of all, was about missing Christian himself and the team because it was a private endeavor and he wanted to uh, channel his creativity in a very different way because he had been in shoes for 20 plus years, so shoes and an accessory. So for him, it was about bringing the heritage and, his, and also his, again, curious mind how to learn to work with different material, different market, different way, right? It was fascinating to work directly with a designer that had, had such an identity, but at the same time was so hardworking and open to options. And uh, it was fascinating to see somebody who doesn't use makeup that didn't use the product that I was working on and didn't know the limits to look at it in a very different way. The way we developed the lipstick was in a very different way, for example, because he thought lipstick were ugly as an object when in fact he thought that women's are beautiful. That's why he, used, you know, he designed bags and shoes for them. And he's like, why are you using those things 20 times a day and they're so ugly? Why don't you do something nicer? So this was another way from an outsider of looking at an object that was very trivial that literally every woman has. I mean, the average woman has seven lipstick in her drawers and bags. And I was looking at it in a very different way. So we developed this product in a way like, how do we make it beautiful? How do we make it pleasurable to use? How do we, uh, not only in terms of the application, but also the packaging and the formula. So a very different approach to to an object that had been in my life for decades at that point. So that was the fascinating part.
1: And at what point did you start to re-identify with that biology student? Because, you know, you're thinking about formulations at this point for sure. I'm sure at L'Oreal there are plenty of of moments where you had to dive into the nitty-gritty. And certainly today, it's core to knowing the business that you're in. Was that always something that was present? You were always kind of thinking back to those those classes and that kind of using that side of your brain?
0: Well, I, I knew enough to know my limits, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I also yeah. know enough to know that it's a very vast domain with a lot of possibilities, but it needs to be converted to be used in a way that is applicable in business. The other thing that this, those class taught me is the notion of time. The time when you are in science and research is, is very different than if you are in business, and it's even very different in, depending on the business, right? When you're in cosmetic, you think three to five years. In fashion, you think six to 12 months. But when you're in research, you think about seven to 10 years. So the notion of time was very important. And the fact that there were so many options that the field still needed a lot of discovery to bring uh, something to market that was a substitute to what we say today, which is animal input and to some extent, virgin petrochemical. And it is clear that there is also, as you talk about generalist, beyond the biology, there is the regulatory framework. There is the uniqueness per country. There is the tailwind and the roadblock associated with them. There is the manufacturing, the transparency, the traceability. All those notions are very important when you touch anything that is biology and in the case of modern meadow, protein-related.
1: Yeah. When did modern meadow show up on your radar screen? Do you remember when you first heard about it?
0: Well, actually, I've, I after my, my time at Revlon, I was like, okay, it was during COVID, all of us had come to Jesus, matter of speaking, and uh, specifically with a husband who is in hospital here in New York. Um, it was pretty intense. So the idea was, okay, after that, what do I do? Do I continue on beauty and anything that is really a luxury? Or my conclusion was, until now, my strength has been to build business. And clearly, as a world, and COVID was an expression of it, we can continue to consume, exploit, and do business as usual. And I could not remain on the sidelines, so my objective was to go and help a company with a a technology that had specific requirements, which was, A, would not compromise on performance, because as a CPG, as a consumer good person, I knew that the consumer was not going to compromise what they wanted, despite their value and, and everything you can imagine. Second, that was scalable because uh, there are millions of smart ideas and great technology. But if you can't scale, it's uh, intellectually stimulating, but pretty much economically irrelevant. And three, um, sustainability was the key mandate. And what happened is that they actually reached out to me, which um, after multiple exchange and conversation, um, we thought that was a good fit.
1: What was the recruiting process like? I mean, I would imagine it was really interesting.
0: Yes, it was interesting because Modern Meadow was understanding that after X numbers of years of R and D, um, the company had acquired tremendous knowledge in protein and protein application. And protein, imagining this as a new, as a very old but new molecule, to bring functionality to any type of product you can imagine. To give you an idea, today we are. In textile, we're in, in beauty. We'll be in myomed, and many other industries because this is a, an incredible molecule that can, if harnessed properly, will bring property like color fastness, breathability, and even anti aging property when it is a bioactive in in your formulation. So. When I came here, the idea was to harness all this knowledge accumulated over the year and to commercialize it. And the idea was, how do we go about it? With what partner? Because we are an R&D platform. And basically prioritizing and engaging and, and going for partners, knowing that our technology, and this is what attracted me to Marmedo is a, is a plug and play. So the, all the, the headache and the nightmare happens in the labs. It doesn't happen on the line so when we get to a partner, there are some tweaks, but basically it's a typical tech transfer that you can imagine in any manufacturing environment because we integrate already all the know-how and all the equipment that exists in the world as one of the constraints. And therefore, the once once we go, we go. We can roll out very easily. And this is what attracted me to Monometto, is the ability, this very pragmatic approach to science where it's not about being perfect right away, it's about going first step and getting better and better, the continuous involvement and the continuous discovery at the research level, but in a very pragmatic way so that when we get to the partner, it's kind of, as I said, plug in and we can roll out as fast as, as they're ready to go.
1: So let's take it back to basics for folks and explain kind of in layman's terms, what you would say Modern Meadow is, what you do.
0: Well, first of all, we are, as I mentioned, an R&D platform. So basically, we do the research and we find a solution that will make any type of manufacturer a biomanufacturer. And we use protein as the weapon. And when I say protein, it's two types of protein, plant-based protein and recombinant protein, which are protein that we have designed, engineered, and we are producing via precision fermentation through a partner, right? So we have those tools if you want, and based on how we apply them and where we use them, we have the ability to enhance certain material or substitute, again, animal input and petrochemical. So I'll give you two examples in two very different domains, right? So in beauty, for example, we have a recombinant protein. It's a human-like sequence. So technically we copied what you and I have in our body, and it's a collagen three. Collagen three, it's the youth collagen. It's what every cosmetic company is trying to get from non-animal source, to be able to regenerate, having this glowing skin, having you know skin that is more uh, firm. And basically, we have designed, we have copied nature. We have copied literally with the sequencing from human, and now we have produced it through fermentation. And why is fermentation is interesting? Is first of all, if it's not animal, first of all, there's no animal cruelty. It's halal, it's vegan. But also you control the quality of your output. You trace your input and you control your quality. And there is, it's biocompatible and biostimulating. Also, there is minimal, if no impact on biodiversity and land usage. So suddenly in an industry uh, which use massive, I mean, it's it's billions of products a year that are sold, right? That you have now a reliable source, traceable, that is safe, that is biocompatible. And on top of it, of it is clinically proven to have efficacy and has anti-aging properties so this is what protein brings to the beauty world if you want in the material space or the textile space we have developed what i call a lego system which we call a bioalloy. alloy an alloy is like bronze right two stuff together the ones you mix them you cannot separate them but also it creates more property than what the initial ingredient were so we have an, a bioalloy. We have multiple, actually, but I'm going to talk about one, which is a plant-based protein plus a biopolymer. And what we do is once you mix it and you apply it, depending on what you try to do, you can have a material that is, looks like leather, but is not, looks like suede, but is not from animal hide, or looks like a typical textile, but has, in all cases, is more abrasion resistance or a stronger tear strength, if you want. The color fastness, meaning that you can wear the color. It's not going to bleed off other fabric or, or show up on your skin if it rains. And it will be uh, light. So you don't carry, you know, a super heavy material. That is certainly tough, but it's in this case, it's also light. So again, it's learning from nature to make things even better. And that's why we say sometimes we have bio replacement, but sometimes we have bio better and bio best. And in this case, we have, using it in many different industries, we can provide you with a shirt that that is dyed, but using 95% less water and 65% less energy. Or you're carrying a bag that is 65% bio content and is beautiful and is abrasion resistant. Or you're going to wear a jacket that has a membrane that has a high bio content, but is also breathable. Meaning you can, you know, exercise and you're not gonna feel like you're wearing a tent and at the same time you're gonna be protected by the weather.
1: I wanna pause because I want everyone to that listens to this to fully appreciate the order of magnitude, the the transformative nature of what you're saying. Cause I think there's so many aspects of what you just described that are interesting in and of themselves. But when you look at the take a step back and look at the whole picture, what Modern Meadow is doing is transformative, a really truly transformative research and development and and system, a a new way of building products that we use every day, all the time in a way that's cleaner, better, more reliable, less, like you said, less water, less carbon. I think sometimes it's easy to get lost because all the things you said individually are like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's interesting. But like, take a step back and all those things are really transformative.
0: I think that's what people talk about. Everybody is talking about the bioeconomy, the bioeconomy, right? So it's like a big word kind of that is becoming overused, used and abused again. But what does it mean? It's using biology the same way in the past we used petrochemistry. Last century we used petrol as the source of certain unlock, both in terms of performance and operational efficiency. Well, now we're gonna use biology not only for performance, but to try to mitigate the impact we have on our planet, because there is no plan B. There is only one planet. So we got to make compromise. If we cannot reduce our consumption, we have to consume differently using different input. And this is what we're trying to do with biology. We use biology as a technology, if you want, but I'm sometimes a little surprised why people are so surprised that biology can do so much when in fact, they are not questioning what the petro industry can do for them. Well, guess what? Take petrol, but now it's bio.
1: Yeah. And I think part of it is just we rarely stop and think in a given day how anything we consume or use was actually made. We had Charles Dimler and Matt Sturbins from Checkerspot and Wonder Alpine, a material sciences company on the podcast a few months ago and we had this whole conversation about like when people start to realize what actually plastic is <laughs> because they never, you know, they just don't take the time to think about what constitutes the products that are in our lives that are sitting in front of us right now, you know?
0: Or oh, that they're wearing. I mean, if you go beyond plastic, right, you use petrol, because sometimes plastic has a specific definition, and I have to be careful because my team otherwise is gonna is gonna come back to me and say, okay, you were wrong on this and this, because it's true, it's not not all of it is plastic. But if you use petrochemical input, everything you wear has it. If you have a bit of elasticity and and most of your fabric is blended. There is some type of petrochemistry that has been used either in the blend or in the diability of the material. When you use animal hide, there is a finish that is put on or during the tanning process or on, at the end that includes petrochemistry. What people think is leather smell is actually the chemistry because you can't use a leather that is still smelling like quote unquote leather, because first, if you've ever smell a hide just after it's been, you know, the animal has been clean and, and, and the fat has been removed, it's not smelling so great. The second is, of course, they're using petrochemical because you can't have a... the hide is a skin. It will rot if you don't do something about it. It will decompose. So I think that people do forget indeed that there is a lot of petrochemistry used in everything we touch on a daily basis.
1: The other thing I want to hone in on a little bit is this idea that the false premise of a trade-off between products that are are better for the world and products that are actually high-quality products, this notion of a trade-off between sustainability and quality is just inaccurate. And we need to start to challenge that both in how we talk about industries and companies that are building new and sustainable um, ways, but also the products themselves. We want to make sure our we're focusing on are building better products. And that's something that's really important at Modern Meadow, this idea of you know, that false choice between sustainability and performance. And I'm curious to you talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, I mean, this is obviously our mission, right? Is to bring the same quality product or better with the sustainability dimension. And today we talk a lot about sustainability, but as I had mentioned before, for me, sustainability today is what safety used to be, you know, 50 years ago. Safety used to be a feature to be noticeable in the USP, unique selling proposition of your product, right? Today, safety is granted. Everybody assumes they're not going to die using or ingesting or applying any type of product that they're going to buy in the market, right? Sustainability today is a feature that is going to become, in my perspective, and should become a non-negotiable. Now, this notion of performance or sustainability has existed because the technology was not ready. And it's not ready everywhere. I mean, we have to realize um, petrochemistry has existed for the past 120, 150 years. Biotech, you know, the infancy of biotech was 40 years ago. and, And we're really going into CPG in the last 10 years, if you want, 10, 15 years. So there is still a gap in some area where the tech has not been able to match the performance and the sustainability the notion of sustainability itself is an interesting one what is sustainability right what dimension are you focusing on is it on the bio content is it on the carbon footprint is it on the water usage is it in in the recyclability of the item what is it so this is where also the same way we quantify and identify mechanical performance or performance in general I think that when we talk about sustainability, we need to do the same. Identify which sustainability lever we are targeting and we are focusing on and are improving. So we at Monumento do that from the get-go. When we develop a tech or we or investigate to get into, into a, solving a real what we call a real-world problem, we identify all those areas. What are the mechanical performance we need to hit based on what is existing in the market? And the second is, what are going to be our focus? What are the sustainability criteria that we want to hit that we want to improve versus incumbent or versus whatever it is, right? The input that needs to be, that is going to be a bigger win. In diability, obviously, water is the number one thing. If we can reduce water in diability, we're going to really make a difference. And this is where if we don't manage to hit those we don't bring the technology to market because there is no point of doing the same thing differently. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't help anyone. So we just focus on where, where we can have an impact, both in terms of performance and sustainability. And that's what we're about. It's about the R&D to get there. And then we, will, we pass on the baton to the manufacturer to become a biomanufacturer again, or a sustainable manufacturer, so that they can bring to market uh, in their existing uh, footprint and with new or current partner themselves, customer, this technology that will have a a real impact.
1: You said something early on in in that that I'm really curious to get your take on, which is when you guys look at the big problem that you're trying to solve in any given use case, how do you think about identifying those problems? Are, Are Those problems that come to you through manufacturing partnerships, folks that come and say, hey, we want to do better on this. Are these things that you and the team surround and say, okay, where are the opportunities commercially, scientifically? and environmentally that we think we, could, or we can use our technology. What is the process of identifying those big problems?
0: Yes, yes, and yes. So, <laughs> so why? Uh, number one, uh, before we even had partner, I mean, to be honest, the problems or the wins are, have been identified by anybody and everybody in every industry in textile, in, in the dyeing mills, right, or you go into the coating textile mills, they will tell you what they would like to improve. You don't, it's not a secret at all. So in Modern Metal, we have people like me who used to be operators, We used to be in the companies uh, commercializing the product that uses technology. We also have scientists that are both, uh, that have been obviously, um, have PhDs and other engineer but also they've worked. They're not academic. Some of them were academics, but a lot of them were in the industry as well. So they knew from their past life as well, the problem to solve. Then when you start working with partner, what they will tell you is right away, is your product interesting? Is it feasible? And then they will lead you to a second one and a third one and say, hey, we've been trying to resolve this for the past 10, 20, 30 years, didn't get anywhere because we need an R&D and you guys are the R&D. Can you help us with... Dot, dot, dot. And this is where the virtuous uh, situation, when you have an, you know, an ecosystem of partners who are complementary in terms of skills and capability, that's when suddenly you not only understand wh- where the gusto is, what is it, and you have somebody who's going to help you to get there faster.
1: What are the big problems that you guys are solving right now that are most exciting to you? What kind of is most exciting to you about the product and, and answer portfolio?
0: So I'll give you a few examples, right? So a, a alternative material with a high bio content that looks like uh, leather. So we've gone to market with something called Biotex and one of the brands that is commercializing this material is Tory Burch. And we've shown that high bio content quality at scale. I'm not going to give you the number because she's a luxury brand and she would not want, but large number. You can, you can do that. At the price that is competitive so that she doesn't have to pass on a, a green premium. The second is we we just come out of ITMA, which is a big international show that happens every four years of equipment and science, again in the textile industry, right? We, we were one of the three finalists in the best technology that they had identified in the last four years. And why? Because we have a technological biofree, which is again fast, resource-efficient, enhanced diability system. With our protein and alloy, we are able to basically dye blend materials, which usually take 15 hours and uh, multiple paths, um, we're able to go down to an hour and a half to two hours and reduce water consumption by 95%, energy by 65 and chemical by 70%. So when you think about the ability today, we, we are with one partners and we are expanding this, but suddenly you, you realize, okay, we can make a dent in water consumption in this. And we are industrializing as we speak on that. Uh, another example is what we call Biovera, which is an engineering uh, engineered alternative, renewable alternative to what a leather and different type of animal hide, if you want, that looks and feels very you know full grain leather or suede or else, with extremely interesting uh, mechanical. So super light, 15 to 25% lighter, stronger than any uh, animal skin you have on the market, um, is traceable, completely traceable. 90% sustainable content between post-consumer um, waste, so recycled, and protein. So we have a 90% sustainable material now that is better than the incumbent material that is traceable and that you can recycle. There are certain products that we, it's going to be very difficult to change the, the actual material, like tires, right? Tires, it's going to be very difficult to make them of material that is not basically petrochemical-based. So you need to have a venue that is beyond burning the tires or, you know, basically bury them somewhere. And this is the other sustainability dimension we're going after is circularity. And if we manage to get those controlled and tracked and recycled, which is we have a partner and we will announce that to obtain this type of of resins, if you want, we will be able to develop a material, which is the Biovera. That not only is, is going to be a champion in circularity, but will provide industries from fashion to automotive and airline, a material that is extremely durable, light, which is great when you're thinking EVs and electrical um, vehicle in general, and that is recyclable itself.
1: You've been um, candid about your take on supply chains in general and the need for everyone to do better. and And for your former colleagues in beauty to do better and and everywhere, but also how part of that solution may be that together we can collaborate. And and the the quote that I've I've seen from you is, you have to work together to run faster. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your take on what's required and how we can collectively do that, how we can collectively run faster.
0: I mean, I was in big companies, so I know how how good or slow it can be inside, right? And this is normal. You, you're moving a tanker. The risk is very high. And you can't say to your employees and suppliers and partners and all the stock market, "Hey, wait a, wait a quarter or two, we'll get there. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So I think that what needs to happen is obviously there are certain companies that are understanding that sustainability is is a non-negotiable and they're not digging their heels, they're really going after. I think that what is going to be interesting and the complexity in the bioeconomy is that it touches everything, everywhere, all the time. And this is how you coordinate this type of effort is the complexity. So even when you have a partner in front of you, you will talk to six different departments can be the material innovator, can be the purchasing department, the designing, the merchandising, the marketing. And this is where it gets things a little tricky. And I think that we don't have time for business as usual. I think that's where certain companies have identified that they need to go to market faster and they have created a, a parallel path that is specific for startup that will provide bioinnovation. And I think this is where that's very important. Um, I think that the company in general that realized that this is a non-negotiable, that this is traceability, accountability, sustainability, reliability on your supply chain, are reality that will not go away, when everybody comes to reality with that, I think that we're going to go faster.
1: I'm not a big fan of calling out the bad actors, but I am very curious if there are companies that you actually think are inspiring because they are working harder, doing more innovative things, trying to solve these problems, taking this seriously, anyone that you would call out as a champion or on the right path, you know, and doing, taking the right steps as they can take them. Brands that we, you know, might know and love and think, oh, I didn't know that they were actually at the forefront here.
0: Well, I think there is a lot of, after the the, the greenwashing, greenwashing, there is green bashing. <laughs> So I think it's easy to go after everybody, but you know, a little bit like everyone, right? And some of them did it with intent and some of the intent was not positive, but some of them are just making mistakes and learning along the way. I think that we need to give those companies the benefit of the doubt. Now, there is a moment you call them out once, twice, three times, then you go for it, right? There is a moment the warning is fair, but you got to get your act together. But I think that in the bioeconomy in general, there's been a lot of... We're still learning. All of us are still learning. The testing uh, mechanism, what means behind every word. And I think that's why there are certain countries in the world that are creating legislation to not even use certain terms. Like in Europe, you won't be able to use the word biodegradability. Because today you could claim biodegradability, but the competition would be so specific that they're unrealistic. So are you lying? No. Are you misleading? Maybe. So... This is where regulatory framework will come in. Now, in terms of the company that are trying, are they there yet? No, certainly not. But are they trying and they're, you know, investing in it? I mean, again, Tory Birch, right? She didn't go for a capsule collection. She didn't go for a hundred bags. She went for the entire collection in the iconic bag and she went for it. And she's going for... Uh, many items in their collection. I think, and we have partners, we've seen partners in which we are working with. I mean, you're going to see closed uh, a German company, we're going to see Staten Island. But again, Ivonic, right? Ivonic didn't have a collagen, a protein and collagen three type uh, molecule that could bring both efficacy and sustainability, and, and they went for it. So those guys are showing the way. Now, of course, my ex-employee like L'Oreal has been on this journey uh, as well for, for many years. Are they yet? No, they're not. Do they have a lot to do? Yes. But are they serious about it? Certainly. Now we can we can tell them, you know, go faster, but they're on it. Some others don't.
1: Yeah. Where do you think are the big milestones for some of the big industry players like that? What are the things that they should be thinking about and taking on next?
0: I think that innovation will come, and and some of them already know that. They will come from within and outside, and outside in many forms. Partnering on the tech, acquiring the tech, or investing in the tech. And I think some of those big players have understood that. I think they have to go faster, personally, because I can see in many fields the tech being there. And the only thing that's stopping them is the agreement. Because everybody right now, all the big companies, in cosmetic, in fashion in food, in whatever, are scared, are scared to be called out because they are not good enough or clear enough or whatever it is. So they are slowing down. I actually seeing them, I'm seeing them slowing down because of all of what's happening right now. And they are trying to juggle conflicting messages about do this, don't do that, say this, certainly don't say that. So this is where those big corporations need to define a line, be clear with their stakeholder that this is going to evolve and they need to create a path that will bring them faster there.
1: Yeah. I I have to imagine the macroeconomic conditions are also not helping everyone stay fast. (laughs) You know, whether it's just uncertainty, there's this conflict. It feels like the world is sitting in, is paralyzed by uncertainty in ways coming, still coming out of COVID that like we didn't collectively go through the psychological processes of reconciling what just happened you mentioned that you personally and you your family you did have that moment but i feel like a lot of people didn't and they just kind of let it well you know
0: you have you have the human behavior i'm not a therapist but indeed there is a (laughs) range of behavior that came out or not out out of it right i think that we just come out of 15 years of writing an amazing or maybe not 15 but yeah, maybe 15, 12, uh, 12 to 15 years of very good economy, and now it's a shockwave of, oh, oh wow, not everything is on Kidori. But if you see the latest number in terms of inflation is down everywhere in the world, and employment is at the lowest in a long time in the US, I think that you see a lot of indicators that are uh, very positive. Um, I think that there are certain regions in the world, of course, concerned by different things. The war in Europe is definitely something that has concerned a lot of people, but If you ask around, I think that there is this notion that they need to, everybody has to learn to function in an economy that is not as rosy as it's been for 15 years, step number one. And number two, the bioeconomy is not the digital economy. Digital economy had tremendous lift at the beginning to develop the technology. But deployment, once the infrastructure was made, is relatively easy. Now you develop anything in in tech and it's out in the world in a question of weeks, right? So when you touch the bioeconomy, it's the economy of things. And that's a very different ballgame. It's a lot of players to to bring in. It's a lot of troubles to face. And it's slow. So I think that it's a, just a shift in mentality that we all need to to agree that it will take a, a little time, but all of us. It doesn't mean that we should be complacent and slow down because it takes time. At the opposite, I think that there are certain things that need to be accelerated because no matter what, it will take time.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to flip the perspective. I like that. Obviously as you just said, you had that moment where you realized you wanted to make a change. And the company in the mission statement itself puts inherent value on doing good for the world in in what you are producing and building. And I'm curious how you think about aligning profitability or profit-making, the corporate finance of of day-to-day life with the idea of purpose or doing good for the world. How do you align those two things, either personally and or how does Modern Meadow do it?
0: So I think that, first of all, as a collective, all of us came to Modern Meadow for that reason. Many of us had prior life. We're not all spring chicken. But all of us wanted to bring that dimension into reality. Now we also have, because we're a startup, we have investors, and they are in the same mental frame, which is, it's not about bringing any tech. It's about bringing a sustainable tech. At scale. So I think that, first of all, all the stakeholder at the table are all in the same wavelength. So I would say in that sense, it's easier. When your you know, your birth act, if you want, is about that, it's a little easier because no matter what, the people who you attract and exchange with are already in this wavelength. Now, obviously, for us, it's about because we are a startup and resource conscious, it's important from the get-go when we do a quote-unquote product brief or when we define a technology is to make sure we hit the right KPIs, as I mentioned, so that we are both relevant and have a positive impact because we cannot go everywhere. We have to pick and choose. The other part where we have the ability to make a difference and we have a controlling aspect, if you want, is in the partners we work with. We align on values before we align on business. It's not that difficult, to be honest, because, again, the best in class, and our partners are world-class partners. We're very lucky in a way. Those guys understand that there is no choice. And the faster they get on that train, the more competitive they will be or they will remain. And basically, they are going to be creating a mod around them because while others will catch up, they would have been optimizing what they have learned from us and with us, Right. So this is where those guys understand that you know, they're doing good for the planet, but they're also doing good for their shoulder. And being in the forefront and supporting a company with this type of value and track record like we do, they will remain or become leaders if they're not already.
1: Yeah. I want to end on some big picture questions. I find your path and your passion right now just so inspiring. And I think a lot of people will or do. I'm curious what you hope your legacy is.
0: It's a big, uh, it's a big, it's a big word to say legacy, right? What I believe all of us have to hopefully learn in the process and live the people we around us and the world around us a little bit better than how we found it. I'm not very ambitious to be honest. So, how does it appear in, in my professional life? Is trying to f- to have an impact here at Modern Meadow by really showcasing a technology that I've I'm not I'm not the scientist, right? But my team is just brilliant, and they have an amazing ability to bring to market a solution that is that is just blowing everybody else out of the water. My legacy, if I can make Modern Meadow the authority, and I can help growing the business in a way that will create an alliance around the world of partner with the same value and as fast as we can to market so we have an impact, that will be the legacy. And obviously the people that I, I work with on a daily basis is showing them that it's possible. They don't have to choose either or. They can do both.
1: I mean, you think about the potential of the... You just. The technology that you mentioned um, was a finalist at this past... Yeah, Biofrida
0: Idma. Yeah.
1: yeah. If you think about what impact it would have if every pair of jeans that we buy is dyed <laughs> with 95% less water and 70% less chemical components and 65% more energy efficiently, like that's a pretty impressive legacy, <laughs> I would say. <laughs>
0: and, but, you know, this is where I don't... I. That's where I think about us as a collective. Yeah. You yeah. ask me on me as a person versus the collective, right? Biofreed, the same thing, Biovera and BioCollagen, I believe will have a tremendous impact. And the real one, the very tangible one in things that really do matter. And it's a question of speed to market and adoption, right? Which is the legwork associated with economy of things. But yes, as soon and will will be the reason why there's going to be fire under the heat of a lot uh, the, the feet about of a lot of people. Soon we'll bring to market technology that will bring this, and then it will be a choice. Because in common today can say you know yeah, but we can't. We don't have it. It doesn't exist. Whatever. Now we're bringing it to market. Now it's a choice. You have the choice to pick this or that. You decided not to pick it, and that's when we're going to say to people, okay, make put the pressure on because the options yeah. are there.
1: It's time to to live what you've been saying for a while, or? Mm-hmm.
0: There is no escape. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Last question, and I, I ask this oftentimes, but you recognize and talk about how we have to work fast because the problems are real. And I think a, a lot of folks react to headlines about those challenges with a, a sense of despair, that it's just too hard or the problems are too big. That you think about what you're mentioning, getting all the partners on board, all the various potential customers on board and all the technologies that are required all the parties like this is systemic like this is a systemic change in how we all think about manufacturing in your case right products material sciences and that's a daunting reality i think and yet you're inspired and motivated to show up every day and you're you're not dissuaded by that daunting task how would you suggest others who feel a little bit overwhelmed with the negativity or the or the negative headlines how would you inspire them to think about things to keep moving in a, in a positive direction
0: so i think it's it's we have to acknowledge this there is uh, as many bad news as there is good one actually two times more so I think also because it makes more for headline, the algorithm plays better, negative news than good news, right? So first of all, it's just a reality of things, but it's a reality of things in everything. If it was that easy, it wouldn't be a problem, first of all. So we have to acknowledge, I know it's very basic, but every problem to solve is a problem because it's a bit daunting. Now, what is the option? Sit on your hand and wait for things to happen? I don't believe in the invisible power of whatever. I think all of us need to do what we can do at our level. And collectively, that's how we can make a difference. To wait for others to take on the burden is unfair and probably not very effective. Obviously, we all have up and down. When we see certain things happening, when there is, you know, back you know, in France, back home, um, I'm on the border between France and Italy. Last summer, there was no water. It's scary. When you've been in a first world country where water is just, you know, a basic and you are rationed not for personal consumption but for everything else. It suddenly it hits you. When you know a few weeks ago here in New York we were suffocating because of what was happening in Canada and I'm so sorry for my Canadian friends and my Quebecois and and here it was unbreathable. I cannot imagine what it was. So there is a moment we just have two options and this is where You accept, okay, it's bad, it's gonna get worse before it gets better, but all of us need to do something about it because there is no planet B. It is what it is, so let's get to work. And we always will go further than if we wait, no matter what, even if we're late and we don't go fast, it's still faster and further than if you do nothing. And I think that's how we need to look at it. And every things we do, we can help to make different choice. Because at the end, we humans are inflicting this on each other, nothing else. The planet is going to be fine without us. It's about us making that choice.
1: Huge thanks to Catherine for that great conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Conor Gan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and Strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll see you next week.